there's a couple types of antecedents or the cause for someone to get into a violent cycle. And sometimes it's a reactionary cycle. Many women fall into the men become the perpetrator and they are reactionary and they are equally violent. And so we have to deal with that specific issue as well. Welcome to Success Formula, where success is not a monolith. I'm Cole Johnson, ushering the many different paths to success, and my next guest has paved another road to get there. She is the author of Christopher's Anger, Mending Broken Connections, and recently earned the title as best-selling author with her contribution to the book Success Formula with Jack Canfield. Ladies and gentlemen, speaker, trainer, coach, author, and mental health service provider. And now I need an oxygen tank so I can breathe with all these titles. (laughs) Denise Healy. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on to Success Formula. Thanks for having me, Cole. Now, I I looked through all of your information and I saw a lot of mental health stuff. So I know that I'm, I'm feeling that I'm speaking to a psychologist. Yes. And it is littered all throughout your literature. So why is mental health so important to you? Well, um, I think that we have a, a duty. I have a duty to serve other people. And, and my training is in psychology and education. And I just have a passion for helping people. And so um, my um, I, I find it, you know, just a humanitarian duty to to help people. And um, I've chosen to work with the most at-risk population, the violent, uh, the domestic violent uh, perpetrator in our community, which is um, is a, a group of marginalized and disenfranchised people in our community. And our and our premise is, in, in my work, my premise is, if we can help the violent offender stop the violence, we can stop victimization. So that's why I do what I do. Mm. Mm. Wow. And that's, that's powerful. Mm. Uh, you have any personal experience and not, not talking about professional, but personal experience in that realm of having to overcome. Yes. Um, I, um, I was witness to a lot of, um, I grew up in Oakland, California, and I was witness to a lot of um, violence and interaction with people that was uh, not kind and, and, you know, the soft signs. And, and, and so I made it um, a, I made a decision at a very young age that, that I thought that there was a way to help people be more kind. I went through the education system first and I was a teacher and um and i and i saw it in the children and and i really believe the more educated we are you know the better the the more we know the better we do and so um bringing the message that we can live in a nonviolent world and it starts in the home then um then i think i'm doing my part yeah well yeah you're doing your part and then mm-hmm. some you touched on something really interesting. So, uh, um, hmm. children and education system. Uh, how how do you see uh, mental health or the lack thereof uh, in 
in uh, in in and the role it plays uh, sort of like uh, do you see that in education it helps children in mental health or does it just discard or not even consider mental health a thing with with children well in in the educational system what we see is we see the 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 gamut of of parenting as reflected through the children. So say you have uh, children showing up in the classroom and they're, they're um, having reactions to the attachment with the teacher or they're fighting with their peers. We know that they are la- lacking a measure of skill. And it's different in elementary to middle to high school because of the developmental level. In the, in the elementary, um, they're in their um, very, it's, it's, it's called their, um, in a fixed way of thinking, they become more abstract in middle school. That's why we have a lot of a uh, lot of children who are acting out in middle school. And I yeah. think mental health throughout. And I, I think it's uh, mental health is kind of a, a big scary word um, or phrase, but but just social skill development at early on to help level the playing field for all children to know that they're loved, cared for, that they're capable. And that um, that they can do anything they want to do in education. So it's a skill development process, and so um, help educating students to know that that's true for them too. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Well, if we had more educators like you in the system, I think we'd be better off. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> in having that thought process. Now, you described yourself as quote a victim's advocate who serves the violent offender close quote. Yes. Now, now, what, now, what does that phrase mean to you, and what does that mean to the people you assist? Well, early on in my career, I worked in in victims' shelters, and I worked with the victim who had been perpetrated against, and they were in this cycle of staying in a victimization role, and they identified themselves with being a victim. And I had always thought early on in my career. What if we could help the violent offender stop their behavior? Because if they would stop their behavior, no one would get to the point where they would feel the victim. And so it was a cycle and it it perpetuated itself. So I am privileged today to work with over 350 clients a week with my team and, and they're all referred to us by corrections, probation and parole. And they are all, convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor for domestic violence behavior against their intimate partner. So when you hear the story behind the event, you can hear that these are people who, you know, they didn't wake up in the morning and say, I just want to, you know, I want to beat up the person I love the most. That's not the mindset they have. The mindset they have is, I'm shameful. I did this crazy thing and I don't even know why I did it. And, uh, you know, pushing power and control. Now that's not a politically correct position to advocate for the perpetrator. But my point of view is if we stop the violence in that individual, relationships can be nurtured and we'll stop the victim from being a victim. That is what I find most interesting about you. Uh, You actually have... You actually have this compassionate approach to, like you said, normally a such a matter that whenever it is mentioned that someone is a domestic uh, domestic abuser, mm-hmm. it is lock him up. And normally it's him. Right. <laughs> we, we rarely ever deal with the her. 
but <laughs> lock him up. Uh, keep him locked up. Uh, he, he can't be around other women. And yes, I mentioned gender in this mm-hmm. case because we rarely ever hear about the women who are domestic abusers too. We normally associate women with the ones who are the victims of the, of the violence, not the perpetrators. It's true. We, I serve three groups of women perpetrators and what, um, there, there's, there's a couple types of, um, um, antecedents or, or the, the cause for someone to get into a violent cycle. And, and sometimes it's a reactionary cycle. Many women fall into the men become the perpetrator and they are reactionary uh, and they are equally violent. Um, and so, um, we have to deal with that specific issue as well. But on the other hand, too, and again, this is not necessarily a politically correct thing to say, but a lot of men do not report the violence of their intimate partner because of, of shame, because they don't want anyone to know that they've been beaten up by their wife or their girlfriend. Um, they don't want to... Um, put them in a situation that that would put them into jail where women have less um, inclination to hold back. And so, um, and the laws are pretty clear when it, when someone's arrested for domestic violence, the person on the front line doing the arresting is, are listening for a few things. Is there um, harm or is there uh, a suspect of harm? And is the person um, making the call, are they, uh, fearful of the individual. Do they have, they are afraid of their safety. So you can have physical violence, but you also have emotional, psychological, and verbal violence. So it, 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 it happens both ways, but men are less likely to make the call for support from, from our peace officers. They don't make the call. So it looks, the research is skewed. It looks like men are more violent than women. And it's pretty even right. in the playing field. Mm. Now that, now that is interesting. I wouldn't have, I would not have heard someone who works in that area that would say it's more even. I would have never thought I would hear mm-hmm. that. And, and, and it's funny you say this too, because one of my closest friends, male, uh, has suffered from domestic violence and, a lot of what you've just said, that is his story. And and I've heard him talk about it now. Now he's healed and he's been remarried and, and everything is fine, but he's, he's mentioned those types of things to me. And, 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 and I've always, always wondered from a man's perspective, being the victim, you know, how can that person in, in a, in a, in a world where if he were to say to say to others, well, yeah, uh, my wife or my girlfriend or my partner is 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 physically or mentally or emotionally or psychologically abusing me in a world that basically would look at that man and say, well, you're weak for mm-hmm. doing that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I tip my cap to those who, who don't fall into that type of poisonous thinking. Yes. And, and it, uh, but my heart goes out to them too at the same time. At the time. same time. And, and here's the thing. A domestic violence um, situation is a cycle that requires intimate partnership. So it's, for, uh, we come from the point of view that it's a lack of communication skill. No one wakes up, I don't care if they're male or female, <clears throat> unless they have other sociopathic <clears throat> issues going on. But they, and, and, they, they, they don't wake up saying, I want to hurt the intimate partner that I love most. That seems, right. there's a juxtaposition 
opposed position there. And so, um, and domestic violence is, is a scary, um, label. It, you know, and we know that in some domestic violence situations, we can look at the stats that say there is real danger of death and dying in those situations. So I'm not minimizing the result of a domestic violence cycle. I'm just saying that there is compassion for both members within the cycle. Because if we don't stop the violence, then we are going to continue creating victims or victimization. And so I'm very passionate about identifying. And then once we get into the work with folks, it's really about their accountability for their role in the cycle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and your, your, your teaching in, in that, in, in the way you're handling it, instead of doing it through punitive means, you're doing it through really well, to be completely blunt, a loving way, you know, it's, 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 it takes love to say, okay, well, let's go into why you're doing this so we can actually sort of have you see that this is not the type of behavior you need to have and put in the right things in you. And you're right. You, you produce a, a more productive member to society. If you, uh, uh, if you approach it that way, then you would, if you were to say, well, okay, well, you're bad. You suck. Here's your scarlet letter. Go. Right. Because we know <laughs> that we know that one event does not define us as a human being. One event defines that we need some skill development. And I can't tell you the number of of grown men, hardcore gangbangers sobbing because they said, you know, no one has ever been compassionate or loving. And my team, I'm up to 10, 10 facilitators now, and we hope to go national um, in the near future here in 2020. Um, but, but my team, all of them are trained to put the human being first over the behavior because we know as behaviorists you can reshape behavior if you're intended now there is a percentage you don't respond and and right. and we are very clear we work very closely with probation and um mm -hmm. but those who are invested in their relation we see relationships reconnecting we see uh men and women humbling themselves and caring about themselves and 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 the underlying issue in in domestic violence is power and control and so um, you, you strip someone of their power and control, it's very frightening, right? So, so we, we work from the, the vantage of empowering people and helping them have self-control, which is different than controlling someone else. And a lot of them don't even, um, they've never understood the concept. They've grown up in violent situations. It's intergenerational. And so they said, well, that's how my dad did it. You know, I saw my mom, right. I saw my mom attack my dad. I saw my dad attack my mom. Um, and, and so um, they are learning new skills and it's fabulous to watch the transformation in our clientele. It's fabulous. Mm. Really. Yeah. We're making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad that there are people like you and, and a team that you have, like your team, have a great team that is trying to make it. Yeah, that is trying to make a difference in the most positive of ways. If I can say, um, mm -hmm. my the business I have, I have um, uh, other partners, and we have truly integrated technology with this service. 
because it's very difficult to sit in a live setting with um, gang members from different gangs and people who are angry and violent and impulse control because the managing of it becomes something other than healing and health and and, um, concept development. So we use an online format for all our service and we are able to see up to uh, 12, 15 clients at the same time and there's enough degree of separation and the norms are really clear that they themselves are able to develop because they're in their safety zone. They're in their house. Mm. I have, uh, I love working with um, gentlemen who are like have tattoos, you know, everywhere and they're wrapped mm. up in their daughter's pink blanket in their, in their daughter's room. Yeah. Cause that's the only quiet place they can take the class. It's really right. fabulous. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I've always said that I, uh, I, I, and I've said this about women, but I think you're seeing it with men too in, in the work, in the line of work you do. The most powerful place a human being can be, and I've always said this about women, but the most powerful place a human being can be is when they are vulnerable. Yes. And, and they get a chance to be free and be themselves and be softer than the, the hard shell that they project because they got to protect themselves. In the world outside, or even like you said, uh, <laughs> in the world where they live in their own home. Yes. So yeah, yeah, and and man, you segue me into this wonderful next question, and <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about your children's book, Christopher's Anger. Now, now you talked about how uh, earlier you talked about how a person can come up in a violent situation, and they see the violence mo- uh, modeled for them. And I sort of get the sense this is sort of like a tale of having that being exposed, but the child hasn't grown up to be a full-fledged man yet. So in your book, Christopher's Anger, uh, you demonstrate the anger in the home being manifested in different ways. So in your experience in in dealing with that, uh, which type of anger in the characters that you talked about is the most dangerous to have? Well, I think it's all dangerous. Here's Christopher's anger. Mm -hmm. Very excited about, um, about this book. I, I wrote it back in 2000 when I was working with an extreme population, the emotional disturbed population in the town that I was uh, a school psychologist. And every, um, there's five different children represented in Christopher and they're children that I worked with. And I remember walking into a classroom and, and a child was sitting on um, a special education uh, couch and he was trying to strangle himself. Well, we know you can't strangle yourself, right? Because as soon as you start to pass out, your hands go free. And so he was used to, he was trying to get a reaction from his teacher. And um, so I sat down and I said, so when you're done, well, can we read? And he looked at me and he's just like trying to hurt himself. And I said, I'll wait for you. I'll wait. And he finally um, uh, released his neck and he said, okay, I'm ready to read. So you could see the regulation in this child was not um, not within the normal range, right? And And this child had been through so much in his life. And as soon as we were able to do a a normal exercise like read to each other because we shared reading. He was very smart. He calmed right down. And he was this way because his parents were very violent. There was a lot of gun 
guns in the house and an actual shooting into the fireplace and, and I mean pretty extreme stuff and so he was he oh. he was the the um the catalyst to help me write this book and then I piloted it in classrooms and I read to children throughout the schools that I worked in and they all said I don't do that but but I do pull my hair and I do do that. And so once we tease out behavior that's normalized for them, but it would be considered outside the normal range, we're able then to work with kids and say, okay, let's do some replacement behaviors. Let's go out and um, nurture ourselves or whatever the replacement behavior is. But every every behavior in this book is representative of a child I worked with. So it was a heartfelt, let's help these children come around to helping them have some self-control over their behavior. Mm. Wow. So this, <laughs> in, in a sense, this is sort of like a love letter toward those types of yes. children who have gone through those experiences and, and, and you being an advocate saying, I see yes, you. Yes, I see you. Wow. And it's okay. And and I was very excited because WPS, Western Psychological Services, um, they don't um they they publish some of the highest um uh psychology material in our country. So I was so humbled and proud to be able to be part of that um publishing house and have them publish our, my book. Yeah, well that is that awesome, awesome that you have such there's also you have such literature out there. Uh, for for children yeah. who are going through that type of uh, that type of experience, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Now this would probably be a hard segue, but actually it is a smooth one because all throughout this interview, you have practiced something called active listening. Yes. And in the book that you have written this that you have actually published this year called "Mending Broken Connections," I notice one of those chapters is titled "Such." Yes. It all starts. So why it you, all starts with active yeah. listening. Yeah, I, I agree mm-hmm. with that. So why do you think it's so hard for people to practice active listening? I think um, ultimately we are in a world that we move very fast, very fast. And and what what's happening is I just read a statistic that we have thousands of of thoughts streaming through our mind every second, right? And we're only able to process about 40. We're also, um, with um, the event of, of the phone, we're also one and two degrees separation. We need a time lag between what we might read in a text and how we might process that to respond. When you're in front of a person, it's really hard then to stop your thinking, your judgment, your criticism, your blame, your, your ability to internalize and pause and reflect on what was said and then, then share, either rephrase what, you're, what you heard or to come up with um, an and statement, you know, something that adds to the conversation rather than taking away. And, and, and the biggest thing is I find is people are – fixed in their thinking so what they do is they're over talking in their mind like like someone might say the sky is blue and 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 they might be in the process of well you know last time i looked there was some red hue you know uh, or it was it was a different sky so um it it's the overthinking on top of someone's thought and the more present we are with people the more we can refrain from judgment and criticism and blame, the more we can stay in that window of receptivity and really 
stay in the, as a learner to go, oh, maybe they have something to share with me that I might not have known about or, or not have that perspective on the issue. So active listening is important. And with my clients, we start every client out with, we ask that you are receptive and read this chapter so that you can stay open-minded as we walk together for 52 Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured that because that actually is the very first chapter in that book. And I figured, OK, there has to be a reason and a rationale as to why this is the chapter which begins this book. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it sort of is like that invitation to the rest, which that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I'd like that you picked that totally up on that sense. because that's the whole intention of it being the first chapter. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and no, no. I, and oh, there's ahead. there's other strategies. The, the reason I wrote this book is because my clients were telling me, "I'm making progress. I'm changing. You're giving me strategies that I can apply in my everyday life, and they're working. Like letting go of the rope. It's a great strategy. Or the what question. And and mm-hmm. what happens is they they were saying, but my partner isn't evolving in the same way I am. Now they didn't use that word, but they're right. saying my partner doesn't get the changes I'm making. Right. Can you right. help them too? So the the mo- motivation to write these 10 simple strategies um, is that I give it to the partner as well so they can work it together. These are these are strategies for partners to work together, and they really work. Yeah. I've tested them over yeah. the last five years, and they're, they're pretty strong, and they're simple, so simple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned the... Thank you for that. I, I mentioned the first chapter, mm-hmm. Active mm-hmm. Listening. Uh, the last chapter was interesting to me as well. That that stood out to me as well. Because I had a professor in college and he said to me, so how do you eat an elephant? And I, I said to him, I don't know how you eat an elephant. How do you? And he says, you do that one bite at a time. Yes. And it took a second for me to re- for it to register. But I was like, oh, okay. All right. And so he was... Just supposing that to, you know, you have big projects, you don't try to knock out the project all within one day. You take a little bit each time and each day and you knock out the big project one step at a time, one little bite at a time. So one of your chapters holds the same theory in focus on small successes. In um, classically in in providing domestic violence courses, you usually start. The, or I was trained anyway back in the day to start the class by uh, a domestic violence perpetrator naming their violent event and naming who they hurt and identifying themselves as a violent offender. Now we know, we've evolved over time to know that if you do that for 52 weeks, on your 53rd week, you're going to say, I'm a domestic violent perpetrator. I hurt this person and this is what I did. And when you... Piece, you know, what we think we become, right? And so our approach is completely opposite. We don't negate that the event occurred. We know that it did. We work on accountability, but we really focus on weekly success. What concept did you learn and what, how were you successful in putting into practice the last week? So then if we do that for 52 weeks, the focus of the client is on, if anybody asks, what, what was the class like? 
well, I learned 52 concepts and I put 52 concepts into practice, as opposed to identifying themselves with the label, uh, because change doesn't happen if you are focusing on the fact that you're a violent offender. And we have had such great success here, so we make it a practice. And also, change is not hard. We change all the time. So, uh, and we develop habit all the time. And, and I know this sounds simple, but we all learned how to brush our teeth. And we do it every day, maybe more than once a day. And so, if you can change a habit that easy or develop a habit that easy, you can develop a habit like the what question. I love the what question because um, that's another chapter here. Because it, you cannot work out of your fight flight and freeze part of your brain function if you're asking what what all you have to do in a moment you 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 look at a little child and they're crying ah right and you go what happened and you see that freeze moment in a child's eyes they go like that and the reason why they're freezing is because they're working at a different part of the brain and it goes into their prefrontal lobe cortex the prefrontal cortex and and they're what they're doing is they're into their problem solving. You ask a what question to someone who's spinning emotionally and they'll, they'll stop for a minute. They'll freeze because in order to answer a what question, you have to use this part of your brain. And so it's a very easy strategy. And I remember the first time a client did that, he said, you know, I, I didn't think it would work and I used it and it worked. And I, I stunned myself because I didn't feel like yelling anymore i didn't feel like swearing anymore and that's what we want we want to not only have it to be a cognitive idea that the concept might work we want them to go out and use it and say wow i feel different because i used it wow hmm. that is that is an interesting concept i'd never thought of it in that in that way okay and All they're right. very small concepts and the 10 the 10 mm-hmm. strategies are very simple they're very simple, but very effective. And clients tell me all the mm-hmm. time, and you know, when you're working with an extreme population, they're very forthright and honest with you, like, hey, that really didn't work. Or, but, but when they try it and they feel the difference, the response is remarkable in them. They come back and go, wow, that really worked. Wow. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that explains a lot about you because, well... <laughs> In, in your contribution to the book, the success formula, you sort of talk about the the what yes. question in one of the actions that you listed, which is stop, think, and rephrase. Yes. So, what does that action personally mean to you? Well, I think that if we're going to move forward in relationship, like in in the chapter of valuable and worthwhile, we have to start with changing the societal perception of people and behavior and 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 violent behavior people won't stop their violent behavior unless they find a a more viable option for themselves and um and and a new skill and and truly the people i work with are so labeled that it's very hard to crawl out from underneath that rock it's very hard to crawl out from being labeled a domestic violent perpetrator. It's hard to get a date, right? It's very hard to go out and, um, oh, so you have a felony for domestic violence? That makes people turn and run. It makes bosses fire employees. I can't right. tell you how often employees have been fired because of just the label and, and without knowing all the the. Um, 
the details. And so we have to begin saying that everybody's valuable and worthwhile and perhaps we all need a little training in communication. And, and yeah. what I wrote about here is um, based on a true situation where a young man, um, because sometimes we're the only connect or, or um, support they have in their life, they might get out of jail. Most of the guys I know had no one picking them up at jail. They walked home from far, far away. They end up walking home. They have no place to live. They have no money. They have um, a lot of things against them. And they could, that's why recidivism rate is so high, is because it's easier to go back to jail than to live on the street. And so what we do is our, our uh, uh, classes, I mean, we work with a homeless population. Everyone can get a phone. Everyone has a phone. So we've, we've taught people who are, or provided service to people who are sitting underneath a tree by a river. And, and we might be their only connection every week to support. Mm. So that's why I do what I do. What, what an awesome resource you are. <laughs> oh my and I'm gosh. not alone. I have a team. So I have a partner and a team mm. and we're, we're um, it, it's just really a purposeful endeavor, really. Yeah, no question about that. Now, now with all these wonderful tips and tricks that you provide on how we all can communicate better under crisis and duress and anger, how do you release all the energy that it, that is brought upon you by the, uh, well, I guess you could say the 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 angst your clients have. I have to tell you that is a trick. There, there is a uh, a bit of countertransference. Last night, um, I served forty people, and um, mm-hmm. um, there was one gentleman who asked to stay after class, and he is having to report to the court and turn himself in, meaning um, he has to go. He has to go to jail for three weeks, and um, it pulls on my heartstring because the reason he has to go to jail is not for a domestic violence act. It's because he cannot do home monitoring because he doesn't have a home. And if he were able to have a home, all he would have to do is go get the ankle anklet and stay at home for three weeks. Mm -hmm. But because he doesn't have a home, he doesn't have anyone who would support him. He, he has to go and turn himself in and he's petrified and he's young. He's in early twenties. Well, the consequences of going to jail for this young man really takes him a step more step back from moving forward in his life to be a productive citizen of our community. And so that's hard. But I have um, a clinical supervisor that I debrief with often. Um, I have, um, and I, I really try to um, do the best service I can do and then debrief with my partner and debrief with my my clinical supervisor so I can stay healthy and, and, and provide the service that I need to provide. And I offer that to my facilitators. Um, I, they come to me when they are struggling with some intimate issues of service with a client who is really very critical in our society. Oh. Mm. And I have a great new husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that always that helps. always sure. helps. wow i could continue to talk to you forever but i know your time is precious so (laughs) i will wrap this up now uh 
Where can the people find you and the wonderful products that you provide? Okay, so uh, my company uh, is called Streets to Schools, and you can find us on uh, streetstoschools.com. You also can connect with me directly at denise.healy at streets to schools. And that's school plural with a number two and uh, streets plural with a number two. And, um, and so, um, also, um, we have, it's called S2S, which is streets to schools, S2S DV online. And if you are struggling with, um, um, having a mandate, to complete a course or if you want to take some of our professional development courses or we're starting a 10-week um, webinar series on mending broken connections so for couples so if you want to find out more information do send me an email again that's denise.healy at streets to schools.com well there you have it Speaker, trainer, coach, author, mental health service provider, any wonderful philanthropist to our society, and psychologist, Denise Healy. Denise, thank you so much for being on Success Formula. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. And that concludes Success Formula. I am Cole Johnson reminding you that success is not just a destination nor a journey. It's a way of life. See you at the top. <laughs>